welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. I'm your host, Shimobi Neme, a PGY6 uh, fellow, and I also have my co-host with me, Dr. Jason Brown, who, you know, we, we missed him for the last episode. Uh, Dr. Brown, where, where were you? I, I missed the last episode too, but I'll say this, it sounded great, and you did a great impersonation of me. You, you didn't need me at all. That was a vestigial organ, but that... I had taken some much needed R&R. I went down to Amelia Island uh, off the coast of Northeast Florida with the family. And on vacations, whether we staycation or go somewhere else, we have a, a hard delete email from your phone rule and no no work rule, which I am held very accountable to uh, by my family. So sorry to miss last time, but it sounded great. Well, thank you. And I, I support that family first at all times under all circumstances. Uh, Yes, so I have to give a big shout out to Dr. Andrew Yu, who is a uh, Emory's current transplant fellow. He um, he actually helped put together the Emroid Digest summary that we're going to be talking about today, and he actually sent some questions uh, in for this this podcast as well. Uh, so, Dr. Yu, thank you, and without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Emroid Digest podcast. Uh, today we have a great guest uh, and I'm really excited for you guys to, to be able to listen to our conversation with him. Um, so we have uh, Dr. Justin Boyke. Uh, he is an assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and is a practicing hepatologist and transplant hepatologist. Uh, he cares for patients with a wide range of liver diseases, including cirrhosis and those undergoing liver transplant. Uh, his clinical and research interests are in the management of complex portal hypertension issues, such as chronic portal vein thrombosis, bleeding varices, refractory ascites, non-serotic uh, portal hypertension, and the utilization and outcome of TIPS. Uh, Dr. Boyke, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us, for having me. This is amazing. So, um, so uh, Jason, I'll, I'll kick it to you first to sort of get us started. Yeah, again, thanks for coming on. Um, you know, first of all, just thank you for your contribution to the field. We always like to acknowledge that this is not an easy path. It's long hours. It's hard to get into the position to even contribute to something like this um, and carrying it through all the way to the end and, and giving us something that is useful for a broad audience to further patient care and for continuing medical education or medical education directly is an incredible contribution. So thanks for that. Um, what we, what we want to delve into in the first part is sort of how you got to where you are. Not everybody is born knowing they want to be a transplant hepatologist and, and help write papers and guidelines like these. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from, let's say, college on and how you Yeah, absolutely. So definitely a non-traditional candidate uh, for, for both for medical school and throughout. So um, I was actually an engineer in undergrad. So I did uh, electrical engineering and biomedical engineering. Um, and so, you know, I have the, the mindset, if you will, of an engineer as well, too. So, you know, to me, everything is pressure equals, you know, flow times resistance, right? So, you know, that's the, the classic teaching in engineering. Um, and, and engineers are problem solvers, you know, to begin with, right? You know, we have to solve complex situations and complex problems. And, and that's really what internal medicine and even medicine subspecialties is all about, right? And so... You know, I, I did engineering for a couple of years and then I had pondered medicine for a while and decided that, you know, it, 
was honestly the right path for me. And so after a couple of years of in between undergrad, um, I ultimately then applied to med school um, after doing some clinical based research to kind of broaden my experience as well as even doing a master's in public health and uh, biostatistics. So um, ultimately entered med school and then really had an interest in, in GI and gastroenterology based on some great mentorship uh, throughout. And then as I kind of matriculated through internal medicine residency chief year, I ultimately decided that, you know, I really enjoyed the complex physiology of the ICU, um, but didn't see myself staying in the ICU forever. And so, you know, hepatologists are kind of the closest uh, specialty to the ICU without actually being there, right? So, um, you know, I get to kind of flex my internal medicine skills at the same time while also you know, caring for patients with liver disease. And, you know, I find one of the nice rewarding things is that patients with liver disease, you, you can care for them for the entire arc of their care when they're, you know, progressing through compensated cirrhosis to decompensated, to even going through transplant. And then I even can care for them, you know, after transplant. So to me, it's also rewarding in the sense that I get long standing patient relationships, which is, you know, it's pretty unique to be able to, to see complex sick patients in the hospital, but at the same time have these, these long-term relationships. So you know, that's really kind of how I ended, you know, into the specialty that I'm at at this point too. And, and you know, as you probably aware in medical education, you know, it's, you know, it's really about what interests you about the specialty and what you really see your kind of self doing, you know, really for the rest of your life, right? And so this is something that I found really interesting and, you know, provocative, and it's something that I, I wake up every day and at least enjoy doing still. So, um, you know, and then obviously the academic stuff just kind of follows suit after that, right? And so, you know, when you remain in an academic institution and you're working with trainees, you know, you your mind remains curious and you kind of engage with research, you know, in whatever realm is most interesting to you. And so that's how it really kind of came about, you know, portal hypertension management and the use of tips. And, um, and kind of fell into this realm, if you will, more than anything else. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So you mentioned mentorship. Um, what role did mentorship play? Was there one or two key people that sort of influenced your decision, role modeled certain behavior, helped your career along, and how did you form those? Yeah, absolutely. No, I was I was really fortunate to have some some really good mentors. Um, one of them whom I worked with, um, you know, and actually coordinated his clinical studies um, before I even got into medical school. Um, and he was a, a, an amazing advocate for me throughout medical school, going into residency, um, and has remained a, a really good friend um, as well as a mentor um, throughout the years as well too. So um, I continue to have dinner with him periodically. Um, you know, over the last like 10 years. So he was an incredible influence. I, and honestly, I wouldn't be here today without his mentorship and his leadership as well. That's right. Now, last question before I hand it back to Chima. How do you get involved in groups that write these kind of guidelines? You've got a lot of junior faculty out there. They're pursuing academic careers. Maybe they're doing some smaller scale stuff at their institution. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you know, I think when you're early in your career, especially even in residency and med school, you kind of, you know, you, you take advantage of the, any opportunities that come your way. Um, you know, there is that, that tipping point where you become so busy, you do have to say no sometimes. But um, when you're young and starting out and trying to find your niche and your way in the world and kind of, you know, your area of focus, um, you really kind of have to, you know, take what happens and, and, and accept that and kind of really do the best you can with it. And, you know, in fellowship, I, um, collaborated with a, a couple of other folks on one of our um, uh, American Society of Transplantation, so one of our 
our major professional societies and, and we actually did a retrospective study looking at multiple different sites um, and TIPS utilization uh, and I really spearheaded this project and that kind of was the, the launch pad for um, my involvement in this. We ultimately put together a large prospective registry which we got prior, uh, um, industry funding for and now we, are, we have a large 13 center uh, prospective registry of TIPS recipients for which we're looking to accrue a thousand patients and as a result of all these efforts we then decided hey we have all these great minds that are working um, in all these different sites let's bring together them as well as some other specialties like cardiology hematology nephrology to really put together a comprehensive guidance paper because we have some of the greatest thought leaders you know in the country you know helping out with this study and contributing and why not put together a guidance paper uh, after a consensus statement so we had initially actually tried to host this in Alta, Utah, uh, which was aptly named for our consortium as well. Um, but COVID kind of shut that down, so we actually ran this entirely remotely um, in, in 2020. So one of the, the monumental feats of trying to get 50 people to con uh, 30 people to participate in a consensus building conference over Zoom was was very entertaining. So that's a whole other podcast on how y'all organize and pull that off. That's pretty. Neat. But thank you for sharing those insights, and that I think helps our listeners get a sense of where our authors come from and, and how they find what they do. But I think it's inspirational and instructional as well. Shuma, you know I can always go longer, but I, I know we're trying to keep to the time limit, so I'll kick it over to you. That's right. We got to shut it down. Well, actually, no. That was actually a great. That was a great segue um, because I was I was curious just reading. Maybe just the title, you know, it's entitled North American Practice-Based Recommendations for Transregular Intrahepatic Porosystemic Shunts and Port Hypertension. And, you know, most of, I guess, what we've covered on the podcast is like an explicit, you know, AGA guideline or X guideline, but these are more practice recommendations, practice-based recommendations. How do those, I mean, are they, are they kind of the same in your mind or how do they sort of different than like the standard guideline, you know, paper that gets put Absolutely. out. Absolutely. No, it's, it's a great question. You know, I think the kind of major thing to consider here is that um, in most of Europe, uh, tips are placed and managed exclusively by hepatologists. Um, and so, you know, it's a very different, obviously, in the United States where interventional radiologists are the ones exclusively placing and utilizing tips, right? So that's really the branch point right there, which is why we felt that, you know, it was important to have at least a North American perspective on use and or management of TIPS um, because there's different players who are involved in making the decisions and managing the patients compared to our European colleagues as well. So that's where we really felt like we had to draw the line at least for what's the North American practice pattern and how can we provide guidance to practitioners in North America on how to utilize TIPS, right? So that was really the, the big branch point. And to the second point is, um, you know, most often, like you said, guidelines come from large professional societies giving guidance, right? And we had actually kind of explored this and, and approached different societies about, you know, providing backing and, and putting in. Now, there is different rigor that goes into to professional guideline um, recommendations, of course, um, but there were some other um, some of the major liver societies like ASLD were in the process of updating some of their guidance uh, as well and their guidelines. So we didn't want to kind of, we didn't want to replace that, but we wanted to create a document that was really applicable to the practicing gastroenterologists throughout the community, at large centers, even academic centers, um, which would really give them a roadmap of how to care for patients who are there considering TIPS placement. 
um, because that was really lacking in the literature. Um, you know, our, the most recent guidance or guideline paper in the use of tips was from 2009, which was almost two generations of tip stents beforehand. So a lot has changed then. So it was, right. it was a much needed, um, you know, recommendation. And so I'm glad we were, of course, able to, to get this all together and, and get it published then. Uh, okay, so before I guess I get into some of these cases that are hopefully will flesh out tips and, you know, how it's used, maybe for, for folks who aren't, you know, don't see this on a daily basis, how do you describe it to people like when they ask what, you know, what exactly is a tips and uh, how does it change the, the physiology uh, insofar as the liver goes? Absolutely. So, you know, first I obviously break it down what TIPS stands for. So, <laughs> transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. So, when I describe it to patients, you know, I, I walk them through that you know, cirrhosis is scarring in the liver, which results in increased stiffness and increased resistance of blood flow through the liver. And, as, and I usually use the analogy of, it's like a hose where you put your thumb over the end of the hose and all of a sudden the pressure builds up, water starts to squirt out through the cracks as well as at the faucet. The same kind of physiology occurs at, in the setting of cirrhosis. And so the pressure really just builds up along the vein, around the veins and that causes ascites to form in the abdomen as a result of that increased pressure. That pressure then drives the formation of collateral blood vessels or varices or veins, which you know are prone to bleeding um, potentially. Um, and so, you know, the, the pressure problem is the main driver, and that's as we know, that's the driver of portal hypertension, which essentially defines you know as somebody who has, has then decompensated cirrhosis. So the tips really acts as a a way to decompress or almost like a pop-up valve to basically reduce the pressure from in front of the liver to then allow the blood flow through the tips and then to the backside of the liver. And so the, the tips really can solve the pressure problem, which then leads to all the other problems that the patient's experiencing, like ascites or and or bleeding varices. Hmm, that's perfect. Um, so how about, you know, I'm just gonna jump to the cases and then we're gonna, we're gonna just dive in deeper with those. So, uh, okay, so we'll start with number one, case number one. Uh, we have a 29 year old female uh, she's got a history of cirrhosis, uh, secondary to congenital hepatic fibrosis. She's got hypertension, COPD. Uh, she's actually presenting uh, with lower extremity edema and some shortness of breath. Uh, but, you know, she wants to know about her eligibility for uh, TIPS because she knows that she actually has ascites. Okay. Um, she says typically she gets her ascites drained every few months, but it's worsened. And actually over like the past month, she's required two large volume paracentesis um, in the past four weeks. Uh, so I guess one, like, you know, how do you counsel this patient and is she, is she a candidate for, for tips? Absolutely. You know? No, that's, it's a great question. It's something I'm asked you know, quite often as a practicing hepatologist. So, you know, I think, you know, the, the fundamentals here are really first define and make sure that the ascites is related to portal hypertension and underlying liver disease, right? Um, and that's often really the first step. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, in most folks, you know, evaluation and workup, but it goes without saying, you gotta tap the ascites and send diagnostic studies, including total protein, albumin, you know, to confirm that this is ascites from a portal hypertensive etiology, um, especially in this case, right? A young woman, you know, potentially with underlying COPD at a young age, 
you obviously want to make sure there's not pulmonary hypertension or right-sided heart failure or something else contributing to the development of ascites, because not all ascites is, is cirrhosis. Um, assuming you've, you've made that assessment and you've diagnosed this patient with you know, ascites consistent with portal hypertension and cirrhosis, then you always have to ask the question, has this, has this person adequately been treated with diuretics um, and are they responsive to diuretics? Um, you know, in this situation, if they've never been trialed on any diuretics, it's, it's possible you might get good control and alleviate the need for paracentesis with a good diuretic regimen. Um, but typically, when, in my experience, when patients have cirrhosis and they start to require more frequent paracentesis, particularly more than you know, once a week or once every other week, that's a sign to me that there's really significant portal hypertension um, and you're having significant increase in blood pooling in the portal um, system. You know, that's a patient who over time is gonna develop um, decreased renal blood flow, muscle wasting as a result of, of increased paracentesis. So really I, I consider tips when somebody is presenting now with more than three episodes of large volume paracentesis, usually within a short period of time, um, without any other clear precipitating etiologies um, for resulting in their in their decompensation. Well, okay, so I move the case along. So she in the hospital. She actually gets an echo, uh, and she's actually found to have an RVSP of fifty with severe tricuspid regurgitation. Um, so I guess with this information, one is she a candidate, and then are there, you know, assuming she's already getting diuresis with like you know maximum dose diuretics with uh you know lasix subdactone um given where given her, her heart function is she a candidate and then are there like what are your big are there absolute contraindications i guess for tips that you always kind of chop people off absolutely for? so you know this presents kind of a, a definitely a nuanced uh presentation in her case but you know i will say generally patients with um advanced um, left-sided heart failure, so depressed ejection fraction, um, uh, significant valvular disease, so for example, significant aortic stenosis, uh, or significant right-sided heart dysfunction, um, as well as what you're alluding to here is potentially she might have is severe pulmonary or moderate to severe pulmonary arterial hypertension. Those are all situations where you generally want to avoid tips entirely um, because when you place the tips, or I should say the radiologist placed the tips, you get a, a significant increase in right-sided volume return, right? So all that pooled portal blood immediately returns to the, the right atrium and the right ventricle. Um, and if the heart can't take that, for example, if there's already underlying pulmonary arterial hypertension or a significantly depressed ejection fraction, you know, those are patients who are probably gonna have a cardiovascular decompensation after their tips placement. Um, and what's not mentioned in the, the guidance paper, but there's several uh, papers coming out soon that uh, focus on the fact that patients who go to TIPS at that time with a high right atrial pressure tend to not do so well as we would kind of expect um, with TIPS placement because they then precipitate into you know, pulmonary, uh, uh, pulmonary edema and cardiovascular collapse almost afterwards as well. So I think in, in this case specifically, especially with a high RVSP on echo, we know that that's not a, you know, a, a very accurate measurement, but it does suggest that there's something going on. So this patient either one is still total body volume overloaded and needs more aggressive diuresis before proceeding with tips, 
but also likely needs a repeat echo once they're more euvolemic, and then potentially a right heart cath to make sure they don't truly have underlying pulmonary arterial hypertension or increased pulmonary vascular resistance as well. Nice, yeah, yeah. Are there other, you know, uh, when I think about contraindications or relative contraindications, I've always heard about, you know, high meld or, you know, child's pew score. Are those, are there definite cutoff numbers that you use or how do you, how do you, I guess, take someone's story in and determine if they're a candidate? Yeah. So, you know, I'll preface it. There's not hard and fast cutoff numbers. Um, and so the things that I, when I'm evaluating someone for tips is really what's the etiology of liver disease? What's the indication for tips? And then kind of where are they physiologically in the context of that? And so, <clears throat> For example, somebody who's presenting with ascites, um, you know, there is good data to support that patients who receive TIPS early in the onset of ascites, so before they develop significant muscle wasting, before they develop significant renal dysfunction um, from prolonged paracentesis and long-standing diuretics, those are patients who have actually improved overall survival um, compared to patients who don't get a TIPS. So if you can catch those patients early, meaning you know, if you can first identify that patient who's now going down the track of needing serial paracentesis, right? Needing weekly paracentesis. If you can intervene with the tips before those patients, with those patients, you could potentially improve their, their overall survival because you eliminate the need for all, or eliminate the development of all the other um, uh, complications that occur in the setting of low albumin, muscle wasting, sarcopenia, all the other things. And, and in general, all those things increase your risk of hepatic encephalopathy after TIPS, right? You know, your muscles are a, an ammonia sink, and so you can tolerate ammonia swings better if you have uh, increased muscle mass. Um, so all those things are a factor. So I get nervous about offering somebody uh, a TIPS for ascites um, if they've been having serial paracentesis for six months and they come in with temporal muscle wasting and their BMI is 19 and they're frail as well. Um, that's somebody who probably has, you know, they're too far gone to benefit from tips at that point in time. And usually the MELD score will be often greater than 20 at that point as well um, because of renal dysfunction and other things too. So that, you know, so it's really important to think of where is the where is your patient in the arc of their hepatic decompensation? And, and I think the key is if you can intervene and utilize tips to correct their portal hypertension before they, you know, are in the hospital every other week with SBP and other complications, that's a patient who's probably going to benefit the most from tips. Yeah, so that's good. So I guess it seems like sometimes I feel like I'm always, or I've seen providers maybe be a little more tepid with referring for tips evaluation, but it seems like we should kind of be a little more aggressive because the worst answer you can get is a no, come back later, as opposed to, you know, no, you can't come back because you're too far gone. Absolutely. I know. Um, I, I think I see a lot of providers in the community, um, you know, they think that tips can only be offered to a patient who's, you know, listed for transplant, right? Because of the risk of potential hepatic decompensation with the tips, which turns out to be incredibly low. Um, so the reality is if we can intervene on those patients a little bit sooner, you know, we could potentially you know, improve their quality of life and even their survival as opposed to waiting for TIPS as the last resort for management of their ascites, right? And I think that's one of the key things we highlighted in this guidance paper was, hey, if, <clears throat> if your patient is experiencing more than, you know, a need of more than three large volume paracentesis within the last year, 
that's somebody you should be at least considering uh, utilization of tips in. That's great. Um, so actually, I wanted to maybe take a little segue because I, I, you know, in learning about tips and reading this, these uh, these recommendations, there's a term that I guess I heard in a different paper called like sinusoidal steel, um, and you kind of I guess alluded to this, uh, you know. The low chance, I guess, that people have of hepatic failure maybe after tips. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, and maybe, yeah, just maybe talk a little more about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, so a, a tips is a controlled, <clears throat> it's a controlled shunt, right? So you know, it is a a literal bypass of blood flow um, around the liver, even though the tips is technically inside the liver, right? So you know. Oftentimes, patients, when they have large ascites, they have other collateral vessels as well, which are, which are shunting or bypassing around the liver. So when you put in the tip shunt, you're favoring flow towards the liver to go through the tips itself. And in rare cases, if you know the, the amount of shunting is too much, meaning that you're having too much blood flow through the tips and not enough blood flow through the actual hepatic parenchyma, um, that's a situation when patients really can develop basically hepatic decompensation. So rising meld, you know, rising INR in the, in the face of a recently placed tips. Um, and it happens, but it'll often, most often happen in patients who already have some degree of hepatic insufficiency going into it. So generally patients who have you know, a meld score or a meld sodium of greater than 20, which is most often probably driven by bilirubin, right? Because if you think about our MELD score, you know, it's, it utilizes sodium and creatinine, which are probably more measures of portal hypertension. And bilirubin and INR are measures of hepatic synthetic function, right? And so generally, if the MELD score is more driven by bilirubin and INR, that might be a patient who is at slightly increased risk for hepatic decompensation after TIPS. And, and I mean, for our listeners, the MELD score was originally designed to predict survival after TIPS when it was originally created. Um, and But I'll preface, this was back in the era of bare metal stent tips, which were pretty large diameter stents as well. Um, and so we haven't talked about it, but tips technology has, has really improved in the last 30 years. Um, we now have covered stents, so they're covered essentially in uh, um, uh, Gore-Tex, so that way there's reduced risk of uh, stent thrombosis. Um, and they're also controlled expansion, meaning the radiologists or the hepatologists in Europe can place the stent, they can dilate it to a small diameter and with a fixed stent size, with a controlled wrapper around it, and then at a later date, if they haven't achieved the, the treatment of their, uh, the desired effect, meaning if we haven't reduced ascites after a period of time, or they have recurrent variceal bleeding, we can actually have them go back in and dilate the stent even further to then achieve the, a greater degree of pressure drop across the liver. The reality is we wanna achieve the lowest drop in pressure across the liver with the smallest diameter of the stent possible so we can avoid the risk of hepatic decompensation, worsening hepatic encephalopathy that results from all the shunting as well. Okay, uh, I was gonna take us on a detour, but I'm not. Uh, what I'm gonna do is go to the next case, and then we're gonna get deeper maybe into these, uh, you know, thinking about some of these portal systemic pressure gradients, some of that. But I, I love that. Uh, okay, so next case, uh, 65-year-old gentleman, uh, history of alcoholic cirrhosis and coronary artery disease, uh, presents from an outside hospital for an esophageal variceal bleed, okay? The patient does not come with an EGD report. 
Classic. Classic. Uh, <laughs> but you're told he has three columns of Pharisees that were present, only two of which were successfully banded. Okay. Uh, his hemoglobin is actually surprisingly stable. Um, okay. One, uh, is this patient a good candidate for tips? And yeah, maybe just maybe just talk to us about your concerns or you know not concerns for this this gentleman. Absolutely. So you know, I think we all probably know that somebody who's actively drinking alcohol is at a much higher risk of variceal bleeding and a bleeding event, of course, right? Um, but whenever I do see a case of anyone who presents with variceal bleeding, I, we're always thinking and considering, is there a role for tips at some point in time? Um, and there are a couple different options for tips in patients. There is, um, you know, historically we think of salvage tips where you know, we failed at variceal uh, band ligation, so we were unable to achieve it for whatever reason. Um, and so this is the salvage attempt to stop the bleeding, right? So it's the, it's the middle of the night tips where you try to control bleeding, right? Um, there's tips utilization for other things like gastric varices. So I'm always a little bit nervous when I get a report of somebody who has you know, GI bleeding, but no esophageal varices done, but they didn't see the complete stomach and the, the rest of the fundus. So you always want to have a high level of suspicion for gastric varices, of course, too. And, and TIPS is a very reasonable uh, approach to manage those because, as we know, they don't, you can't ban those. Um, and we have very limited experience with um, uh, glue injection in the United States, unfortunately. Um, the other thing to really consider, especially in unique to this case, is where does this patient fit in the child score? Um, because we have, believe it or not, meld aside, um, we have very robust data demonstrating that a preemptive TIPS, so a TIPS in a patient like this who has an index bleed, who is either child's B, so child's B score seven or higher, with active, who presents with active bleeding, or a patient who's child C cirrhotic with a score of less than 14 actually would have a significant survival benefit from the use of going straight to TIPS as soon as they reach your institution. Um, and I think this is the main instance where a lot of, again, a lot of providers are tepid um, because, you know, it seems to be that TIPS was historically a salvage method, right, for managing varices. And, but you have to, when we look at the data, now there are multiple RCTs as well as meta-analysis demonstrating that there is a significant survival benefit for those, those two groups of patients. Not, there isn't for child's A, and the patients with higher child C scores greater than 14 were excluded. But for that, those unique window of patients, there's definitely a significant survival benefit and a reduced risk of, a significantly reduced risk of re-bleeding. Um, and I personally take into consideration too, is this somebody who's potentially prone to continue drinking alcohol too, right? Because um, in medical student studies from the 60s and 70s, you know, med students were given alcohol and then their portal pressures were measured. Their portal pressure goes up dramatically, um, sometimes up to 30 or 40 degrees of uh, mercury in the setting of acute alcohol ingestion. So even though we counsel our patients to stop drinking, you know, the reality is some people are going to continue drinking and, you know, a tips might be helpful to prevent them from having, you know, a life-threatening variceal bleed. That was fantastic. Um, okay. So, all right. How about this? I'm first the case forward saying, uh, he was evaluated for tips, um, at an aggressive institution and they said, okay, 
you know, this is a child's, you know, B8 and they put a tips in. Okay. Uh, and so you get the report back and they, you know, they have the brief note. IR put in the brief note basically just says, you know, tips placement successful and his portal systemic gradient decreased from eight, sorry, from 18 to eight. Um, what does that mean? And what numbers are we shooting for? Like, is that successful, unsuccessful? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, a great point. And it's, you know, this is a, a classic teaching point that everyone should understand after they kind of see these reports. So, you know, the, the landmark studies demonstrated that varices that bleed, bleed when the portal systemic gradient is greater than 12. And so if you can, historically when tips were utilized, there's always shot to, or, or um, uh, attempted to achieve uh, a pressure gradient below 12 after the tips was placed. Now, these were data mostly in, in folks with alcohol and hepatitis C. Um, it's a little bit of an evolving landscape um, because we're starting to realize that NASH patients behave a little bit differently as far as for when they start to develop variceal bleeding and other complications and at what gradient. But generally, those, those metrics hold true where 12 is kind of the threshold where varices that are bleeding will often have a, a pressure gradient of greater than 12. So when they, now especially in our guidance too, we, you know, we shoot for either trying to get the pressure gradient below 12 or at least a 50% reduction in the, the portal systemic gradient from baseline prior to tips. And so though either one of those metrics has been shown to achieve a really good low risk for re-bleeding after tips, you know, on the order of less than 5% in most cases. And as I alluded to earlier, the, you know, the new stent technology, you know, the risk of in-stent thrombosis is dramatically lower than it was compared to 20 years ago with bare metal stents. And so we, we, you know, we see significant improvements here. So, you know, this would be a patient where, you know, their gradient has dropped, you know, more than half or half as well and is now well below 12. So the risk of future bleeding, and I think the important thing is the risk of need for future endoscopy, it goes away at this point, as long as that tip stays open and stays patent. Perfect. Uh, okay, next aliquot of the case. So after the tip's placement, uh, his wife, who's been present with him the whole hospitalization, is concerned about his mental status, okay, and says he's not as sharp as usual. Um, you go to see him, and he has some increased latency to respond, but he's ANO times three. Uh, so I guess a couple questions. One, like, how do you... how? Do you, how do you assess people before they get tips for hepatic encephalopathy? Like, do you, do you do anything different? And then how are you, how are you treating them after tips and yeah, all that? It's a great question. And I, you know, I think it really, yeah, I will quote patients that on average, you know, 25% of the time folks will develop at least one episode of hepatic encephalopathy after tips. Um, that's the unfortunate reality. Now, you know, there are different things that, you know, make that more likely or less likely. Advanced age, um, low muscle mass, those are all factors that are associated with increased risk of encephalopathy. Uh, patients who have had unprovoked encephalopathy prior to TIPS, meaning, you know, it wasn't provoked in the setting of infection or variceal bleeding, those are patients who are probably at higher, or we do know are at higher risk for developing HE after TIPS, could be on the order of, of 50%. I think one of the key things is in patients with variceal bleeding, you know, HE at the time of TIPS placement um, does not necessarily predict that they're going to have 
significantly worsening HE or HE in the future as well, but likely just the sequelae of, of the acute illness and the bleeding event itself. But for, for patients like this, in this case, um, you know, if whatever they were on before the tips, I would generally continue. So ideally, if they're on rifaximin, I will keep that going. Um, right before we published this data, we did include uh, a recent Lancet study looking at the use of rifaximin pre-tips. Uh, again, this was studied in, in Europe, and it was actually shown that if given two weeks before tips placement, it was actually uh, beneficial in reducing the risk of hepatic encephalopathy in the long term. Now, it's a little bit tricky to get that medication paid for um, prior to TIPS when somebody hasn't had a history of encephalopathy, so there's a logistical challenge there, but I will generally try to keep those medications going if they're already on it. Um, but to your point too, it's very important to definitely assess your patient for prior hepatic encephalopathy because there might be signs of of occult encephalopathy, so like some mental slowing that maybe isn't appreciated um, uh, by healthcare providers, but family notices it. Um, they're maybe just not as sharp as they were. There's some change in sleep-wake cycle. So those would definitely be situations where, you know, it might prompt me to counsel our patients a little bit better. I always make sure that, you know, some of those patients who are higher risk don't live alone uh, before they get tips, or if they do live alone, that they have a family member or friend or somebody who can check on them you know, routinely for the first couple of weeks after tips, because that's the time period in the first four to six weeks after tips when they're likely going to develop their first episode of encephalopathy. Now tell me, so after, so let's say in this case, um, you know, altered, let's say they're on lactulose, rifaximin, he's having like four to five bowel moments a day, but the wife is still concerned, like he's just not himself. What is your, what is your like medical regimen, you know, escalation sort of bit? Like, do you have a standard approach to these, you know, refractory? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the, our data starts to get a little bit limited once we get outside of, of lactulose and, and rifaximin. Um, you know, it becomes a little bit tricky then um, because there's not a lot of great data outside of that. You know, there's some, um, you know, some uh, favor checking a zinc level and putting a patient on zinc if they are zinc deficient. Um, there is some data looking at L-ornithine or LOLA, as some people have called it as well. Um, I think the data supports it given as IV form, but there is a oral formulation as a supplement that's now available. Um, again, those kind of often lack rigorous study, but those are some things, sometimes things that we will try, um, you know, as salvage. I think the key thing is, though, if somebody has had really three episodes of very overt encephalopathy, encephalopathy so grade three or four, requiring hospitalization, that's really the time, you know, to talk to your patient about do we need to constrain or reduce the size, the diameter of the tips uh, in order to alleviate excess shunting? Um, because, you know, the likelihood is after three episodes, that's a patient who's probably going to continue to struggle with, with recurrent encephalopathy after tips. So, you know, that's a situation where you want to think about, you know, dialing back a little bit. And then you have to be mindful of what's the gradient after you, you constrain the tips. And is this a patient who we need to do surveillance endoscopy on if they had variceal bleeding before tips as well. Yeah. And so when you, um, when, I guess when you guys think about sort of dialing back the tips or like downsizing, are there, you just kind of let the IR folks do their thing or, I mean, 
Yeah, no, you, you touch on something that's really important here is that, you know, communicating, you know, and we emphasize this in our, our, our guideline paper too, is that, you know, it's a really, it's a multidisciplinary approach, right? Um, so it does require communication with interventional radiology. There are, are several different ways uh, to achieve narrowing of the tip stent. Um, most, and none of them have been shown to be better or worse than another. They're just differences in techniques. But most often, the radiologist will place another tip stent inside the original tips, and they'll dilate it in an hourglass shape. So that way, it creates a thin neck, um, you know, at the, at the hourglass portion, which then reduces the diameter and increases the pressure gradient across the liver. Um, and so, in the perfect world, you know, for example, in this case. If this patient was still struggling with episodes of HE and their their previous post-tips gradient was eight, I'd tell the radiologist, well, it'd be really great if you could get it to like 10 and not above 12, right? But we have to acknowledge the limitations of, of how they can be able to do that. And so um, oftentimes we'll say, you know, dilate it, you know, narrow it to what you think is reasonable, we'll, and then see what the gradient is afterwards, and then we'll manage the patient accordingly uh, thereafter. And like I said, if the gradient ends up being greater than 12 afterwards, that's somebody you want to revisit at least, um, you know, surveillance endoscopy. I will say, you know, patients with ascites, sometimes just lowering the pressure a little bit is all you need. And so we really, and in our paper too, we, we advocate for placing the tips and dilating it to the smallest setting uh, initially, regardless of the pressure gradient. Because in ascites, you know, it's not like variceal bleeding where it's immediately life-threatening, right? The goal is to lower the pressure just enough to where you can control the ascites and the patient doesn't need paracentesis, but not too much where the patient's, you know, stricken with hepatic encephalopathy, right? Because then you just traded one evil for another evil. So, you know, really, I don't, almost don't care what the gradient drop is for ascites treatment because whatever the tip's diameter that's the right diameter for that patient, you know, we put the tips in, we usually give them four to six weeks to allow them to achieve a negative sodium balance. I'll tell most patients, hey, you get two freebie uh, paracentesis during this time period, but when I check in with you in six weeks, if you're still needing ongoing paracentesis and you have clinically significant ascites where they're distended and uncomfortable, then we'll send you to have your tips dilated and um, upsized even further. If I see the patient and they say, doc, I'm doing great, I only need one paracentesis, I feel good, I'm eating, my pants are, are fitting nicely now, I'm not distended, I say, great. We don't even monitor the tips for patency because if they occlude the tips, the patient will tell me because they'll start to accumulate ascites again, right? So we can forego the need for TIPS ultrasounds and all that other stuff that comes with that because we're just gonna monitor how the patient does clinically. And I think that's a, a key change in, in utilization of TIPS and how we monitor TIPS afterwards as well. That's nice. So uh, I had a question about, you know, kind of follow-up of these patients, okay? Um, you know, what, the, the guy, the guy, I guess the recommendations mentioned a couple things like, you know, patients got to stay overnight after they get its tips placed. But I guess, you know, one, like, what are you, are you looking for anything in particular uh, the next day you see them? And then when do they need an ultrasound? And, you know, when do we care about high flows, uh, high flows in the ultrasound, you know, because, or. No, absolutely. Hence the guidelines, right? <laughs> so, um, no, we, we definitely monitor the patients overnight. 
um, primarily because that's the time when they're going to develop um, uh, cardiovascular complications more than anything else. So, you know, I, for example, today we're expecting a patient coming out of IR for a TIPS last uh, from this afternoon. And I'm telling my, my resident team, brand new interns beginning of the year, right? You know, and I'm giving them the, you know, the, the, the three minute rundown of what to expect, you know, potentially when this, if this patient decompensates, right? You know, and the most common thing we see right after TIPS is um, uh, pulmonary edema, vascular congestion, um, because again, you get all that blood return to the right side of the heart. So, you know, a patient who started out with a right atrial pressure of eight, who then comes upstairs, you know, post tips with a right atrial pressure of 18, that's going to be a patient who, you know, might develop hypoxia overnight from pulmonary edema. They might need some attention to diuretics in order to get that, uh, get that, get that out. Or they might even need positive pressure ventilation like BiPAP or something to, to help bridge them overnight, particularly patients with underlying cardiac disease as well. So that's the Really, that's the most important observation period is to make sure that that patient doesn't have a cardiovascular complication immediately post-tips. Now, there are rare risks of, historically, there are risks of potentially bleeding in the abdomen from a capsular puncture of the tips, but in this day and age, our radiologists are, are so well-versed with tips placement that they often, you know, don't have significant complications like that, but we do monitor them for those, for those issues. Um, I will say, typically, it's very unlikely and very rare we see significant encephalopathy right after TIPS. It's often several weeks later. Um, so most often, patients go home the next day once they, they're breathing comfortably, they feel okay, the, base, the labs look good the very next morning. You know, oftentimes, they're okay to go home. Um, in general, for to your point as far as for ultrasound monitoring afterwards. In general, tips placed for ascites, you know, we forego the ultrasounds uh, to monitor the tips because we're really assessing their clinical response to resolution of ascites, right? And so I really, to, to us, it really doesn't matter if they have a little bit of ascites around the hepatic dome, as long as they're not requiring paracentesis, you know, we don't have to worry about checking that tip stent because you know, if you get a equivocal ultrasound read on your TIPS patency, but the patient's not having ascites, that, you know, you're not going to do anything about that, right? You know, you're just going to let that patient ride. So, um, now that's different for TIPS for variceal bleeding. Now, because you want to catch that TIPS before it occludes completely. So, patients who have a TIPS for variceal bleeding should absolutely have surveillance ultrasounds because if you find out that that TIPS might be occluding or narrowing or there's concern for it, that's a situation where you're going to bring the, the patient back to the interventional radiologist to go in and evaluate that TIPS and potentially either revise it, meaning dilate it up, um, or work around to make sure there's not a kink or a narrowing somewhere. Because um, those are patients who then, if they do occlude their TIPS, they're at increased risk for developing another variceal hemorrhage, right? Um, that's a lot more life-threatening, and that's definitely a situation where you want to monitor with ultrasounds and make sure that you don't miss that. And, that's perfect. Uh, so, Dr. Boyke, uh, we are we are out of time. Um, so that was uh, an excellent discussion uh, on on tips and portal hypertension. Um, for our listeners, uh, you're welcome. Uh, and you know, how do you how do they if they want to keep track of you or or you know figure out what you're doing? Is there a way that you know they can 
like do you have a Twitter? Do you how do, how do they? Absolutely, know? yeah. No, I'm on I'm on Twitter and I, I try to be as active as I can. Um, so it's just at Justin Boyke, B as in boy, O I K E, is my Twitter handle. Perfect. Uh, so this has been great. Thank you for your time and uh, for our listeners. Uh, you know, thank you and see awesome. you next time. Appreciate it. Thank you again. Hang on to your hats, y'all. The medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast could, should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.